This podcast was created by the JCT English team for the Junior Cycle Talks podcast channel. Hello and welcome to this episode of Spinning Stories Out of Light, a series of podcasts exploring the study of film in the Junior Cycle English classroom. This episode is entitled Colour in Conversation. I'm Lorraine Keenan and I'm joined by fellow English teachers Connor Murphy and Mary Lowry. This is the first of a two-part discussion on the use of colour and light in two films from the current prescribed list for Junior Cycle English. Spirited Away, directed by Hayao Miyazaki and Wes Anderson's Moonrise Kingdom. In this episode, we are focusing on the use of colour in film and in the next episode we will consider the impact of lighting. We are delighted to welcome our guest panellist for these episodes, teacher and graphic novelist Rosa Devine. Rosa, you're very welcome. You might like to introduce yourself. So my name is Rosa and I am an art teacher by background. I'm currently the programme coordinator at Fighting Words, where we do quite a lot of creative writing. Um, and some of that has been filmmaking and animation over the years. And um, so my background is coming out narrative, but from a visual storyteller's point of view. Okay, fantastic. And thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Um, also here are Connor and Mary. I'm going to jump in with the first questions. Can you talk about the connections between art and film and how do they translate into education or school settings? When you're working with students, they've generally seen mostly quite mainstream general release films. And um, this film can be quite self-aware that it's a very strong manufacturer of visual culture. So in terms of how I would connect that to school, one of the lovely things about film is that if you can help your students see that they're already incredibly literate in this very well-supported and quite high-achieving art form, and um, it can be really good for their visual confidence in the classroom because if they know film, if they have a favourite film, they already know so much about producing art. Lovely, thank you. And in particular... We were looking at two films, Spirited Away and Moonrise Kingdom. It was my first time watching Moonrise Kingdom, actually, but Spirited Away I've seen a few times. Um, I suppose for us, we were just wondering, what did you notice about those? What struck you in terms of visual design? Any inspirations or references that you could see in these pieces that you might like to share with us? In both cases, I think they've got really distinct colour design, but in a way that is very much in service of the story rather than purely a kind of like visual trick. Wes Anderson's Moonrise Kingdom, but I guess probably a lot of his work feels very nostalgic. And in that particular piece, I really love the use of yellow. It's in there, it's it's the energy, it's the youth, it's the fact that it's summer, it's the fact that it's warm. It's your kind of tinted photograph from 50 years ago. Everything looks like it's from ages ago. I think in a way that isn't even accurate. Like it's it's in the design that it's meant to look nostalgic. I think even if you'd watched it in the 50s, it would still look a bit nostalgic. So colour in Wes Anderson really stood out to me in terms of being something that you could link to other things. Might be quite interesting to look at Anderson's work there in the context of print media and print advertising from the <laughs> earlier period. Some of those colour schemes are really reminiscent. Whereas with Miyazaki's work, I think it's relatively well accepted that one of his strongest influences in all of his visual design is the natural world. And a lot of his films have this really strong kind of dichotomy between the industrialised world and the natural world. And the natural world is often seen as like dominant or pure, the site of childhood. So a lot of his designs and either character or colour choices are coming out of kind of a celebration of Japanese nature. And then in moving away from colour, but just in terms of how things on screen have been designed, there's a lot there as well rooted in Japanese spiritual culture, their myths and legends. 
even right at the start of the film when they have to stop the car they're stopping the car in front of a statue that's a direct reference to the Shinto religions there's a lot of that woven in when you mentioned the print advertisements there Rosa really struck a chord with me and the use of colour particularly in Moonrise Kingdom as well that those yellowy beigey tones and as you mentioned this idea of the nostalgia around that and the idea of nature and summer and so on but then the way the blue is used the way Tilda Swinton who's she doesn't have a name she's social services the way that she's uh, in blue and when you see the blue it has a different meaning or a different connotation and when we're doing that kind of work with students in English when we're talking about print advertisements we, we talk a lot about the power of colour also another thing just because I'm thinking about links back into the English classroom in terms of the visual and um, the way that him he uses text in the film he puts up the maps or he puts up different uh, words and stuff in different parts of the, the text as very strong uh, signposting in a way. It just really strikes me what you said there about the links to print advertising and the use of colour and so on and the importance of colour to give texture, to give meaning and have kind of like a symbolic kind of meaning throughout. One of the things I think is really interesting when you look at the, the visual design of the two films together, because one is live action and one is animation, is that Moonrise Kingdom is designed to look like a film. There's no attempt to lose you in the sense that this is real life. It's really designed and your experience is really curated. It's in the way the camera turns. It feels like you're inside a doll's house, despite the fact that it's live action, which we often think of as more realistic. And in contrast, Spirited Away is actually created in such a way that it almost feels real and naturalistic, despite the fact that there are things on screens that never exist, have never existed don't have any relationship to the laws of physics or anything else. and But the way he's treating his visual design, and particularly in his environmental design, like the inside of that bathhouse, in many ways feels so much more real than the inside of the houses in Moonrise Kingdom because of the way the camera work and the colour and the background has been used. The use of colour, he uses it like a commercial. So you see the colour, there's a, there's a bit where the, the mother in, in the film comes in, she's calling Susie, and she's wearing a blue dress. And then you notice the blue is being picked up in other areas. And if you watch her colour, her dresses change. And at one stage, she's wearing yellow, which is, is the dominant colour. And she's become as if she's coming part of the world. And whereas the father, his trousers change colour and become more blue as you go along. But So it's like an ad. So you expect the yellow of McDonald's and the red of McDonald's to be in an ad. Or the one that I always remember, the, the colour on Cadbury's chocolate that's always in the ad as well. And Wes Anderson's using colour in the same kind of way, matching up, not always symbolic, but uh, sometimes it is, but it's always connecting different things with each other mm. and to, to catch the eye a little bit in a very, in a very commercial way for such an mm. artist film. The red and the white, that struck me loads. The stripes, they were there in the awning, it was there in the, the lighthouse, it was there in the kind of statue replica lighthouse as well. Just that red and white was constant alongside that yellow one. Shall I move to the next question then? What are the distinctions that you would make between an animated piece and other types of film? Features, elements particular to animation, they're used in a different way, Rosa. I think on the surface, most people think that there's, it's really obvious what's an animation and what's a film. There are some kind of like surface level distinctions that kind of come naturally to us. We expect animations to be for children. We expect them to be shorter. We expect them to be cartoony. And then film is everything else. I actually think it's quite a slippery distinction. The early days of filmmaking have so much in common with animation that they are animation working with photographs. Then the two kind of diverge quite a bit. And then animation 
makes a huge amount of progress. And suddenly we're back in a world where we're now using 3D models and sets in animation and they can be lit and there's camera work in animations. And then there is, frankly, amazing animation happening in live action film by way of special effects. So both the capabilities of live action film versus animation are now being used interchangeably in films made kind of in both media. But equally, I think the capabilities that both bring have also started to influence what's produced in either. Media is a tricky word, but I'm going to stick with media because it's definitely not genre. And I think you particularly see that in um, US animated films in the last 15 years and their absolute hunger to be able to use the freedoms that, that come with live action if you don't have to draw everything by hand. You'll see Pixar reuse a lot of artifacts. They like to fill their spaces. They like to light things with it's artificial computer generated light, but it's light. So the distinction between the two of them is really slippery and it depends at what point in film history you're looking at them. But I do think then there are some opportunities offered, whether you're predominantly working in what you're going to see as film or predominantly working in what you see as animation. And one of the things that I think animation, when it's an animated film, um, and kind of been billed as such and been understood as such, offers that is tricky to do in live action is the bar to what we will believe in animation is either much lower or very different. And I think that's why musicals work so well in animation, because there's just much less of a jar. We're already looking at illustrations. We already know we're looking at a very created um, image. There's no kind of real humans in there. So when they all start bursting into choreographed song or when there is a baby who's 12 or 15 times the size of the main character, there isn't the jar that there is in live action, even when you have the most expensive visual effects teams in the world trying to get the Hulk into a Marvel movie or something like that. So I think because animation can do stranger things, but make them feel more natural, and um, it does lend itself to the kind of work that Miyazaki makes, where that kind of difference between imaginary and real, spiritual and mundane, they flow in and out of each other without being a big deal. Whereas to try and get those effects in live action can be really, really challenging. As against that, I think one of the things that live action has that animation struggles to reproduce. I think lighting in live action is a really powerful thing that, again, some very contemporary 3D animation aside, isn't used in the same way in animation. And it's easier to have a sense of the incidental um, in live action in terms of what's in backgrounds. You can use real locations. You can genuinely accidentally capture things on film. And then obviously you have the great advantage of actors. There is much less improvisation in animated films, although I think Aladdin is a standout exception there, much to the upset of the animators involved. Uh, I think the genie ad-libbed a lot of his lines and had to be redrawn. But there's much more dialogue between directors and actors on set than you can ever really have between the animators and the director because so much has to be set down so early in animation production. I was watching um, the making of Mandalorian. The, the, the showrunner was talking about how he made The Lion King and how they're using gaming, computer game software to go into the animation and then using the camera in real life the camera's moving around but you're you're viewing it in the software and using that to, to make the film how they use that in the mandalorian and how they use that for live action but in order to do it they had to prep it so much it was almost prepped like an animated film like the way rosa like we were talking 
So they would previs everything. So everything was kind of not just storyboarded, but almost animated and with the directors. And then they would shoot it live because they had a big video screen behind the Dorona studio. The big video screen was made like a computer game. And it's just fascinating how all the different elements were coming together uh, to create the, the show. I, I was reading a little bit about Spirited Away and I thought it was really interesting that the director, Maizaki, he said that the story kind of writes itself. He does the storyboarding and he doesn't really know where the plot or the story is going to go. He lets the film tell itself. And I thought there was something really lovely in that in terms of, I suppose, even bringing it back to fighting words and writing, where this idea where we have this notion that when a a student sits down to write something or to storyboard something or whatever, that um, traditionally as teachers, we would have, you need your your start, your your setting, your plot, your exposition and your resolution and how it's all going to work together. And this lovely idea that comes from him where this idea of allowing the story to tell itself and giving someone a freedom to see where a story will go. And obviously there's at a later stage, you come back and edit and redraft and so on. But there's a lovely freedom in that that he talks about. And I think it's something interesting for us to think about as we think about the film and the way that he develops the story. I think he's quite unique in his way of developing films in that way. I think that's why it's commented on so often. It does say a lot for the really unique kind of visual and storytelling style that his films have. I, I was just even thinking in the classroom, I had this thought of you know, this a, a lovely collaboration you could have where you could have used something like comic strip or graphic story visual in the art room that begins in the art room and the students tell a story visually. And then in the English classroom, that comic strip is or that story is given words and this, you know, lovely fluid idea of doing it over a number of weeks and seeing where a story goes. There could be something really beautiful in that. And obviously, of course, as teachers, we you're really managing it yourselves and you're organizing it and whatever. But there's a freedom in the creative process for the students. Brings us really nicely to our next question, Mary, which is about the links between a graphic novel and an animated film. And I suppose in terms of how I was thinking about this question, I'm particularly looking at 2D animation, even where it is digitally produced or enhanced. There are two ways of storytelling that are fundamentally set in illustration and the way that we communicate visually using predominantly hand-drawn images. I think there is something really accessible about illustration as the primary uh, means of communication in narratives. I think that's why it's still the dominant kind of narrative that we present to children. It can be simplified. It can be made very easy to digest. It's where we get all of our illustrated books from. There are some interesting differences, particularly because actually, in some ways, graphic fiction and animation are quite interlinked and can feed into each other in production. So as we were just talking about, all films are storyboarded and indeed all ads and television series. There is a point in the production of any film where someone sits down and draws it as a series of images. As we mentioned, Mizaki tends to storyboard it all himself. It's his way of finding the story. In other films, there might be a script that's handed to a storyboard artist and then they put a visual look on it, usually focused on things like composition, camera movement, what's foreground, what's background. Um, But there's a kind of intermediary stage where a film script or a film idea becomes something a bit like graphic, a bit like a comic. A storyboard is graphic fiction in its own way. 
before going on then to be moving visual narrative. If you're thinking of taking storyboards into your classroom and talking about either their role in film production or what they are as art artifacts in their own right, a storyboard is not meant to have a relationship between one panel and the next, except in the sense that it will eventually become that. And any additional information that's been written outside or around it is meant to inform like the filmmaking rather than be part of the artwork, so to speak. Something that's been made more classically in graphic fiction or comics is never going to have the music or the movement. There are exceptions now because the internet means everyone's tried everything. But generally speaking, the comic will stay as something that's static, that's silent, but it will actually have relationships between images that are visual at the same time. So one of the things I really love about comics is there might be a point in the story in the top left of your page and a point in the story a few panels later, but because of the nature of the way we perceive, we actually see those two moments play off each other. In film, we don't get that because the director and the editor and the director of photography have been in charge of the temporality and you only get the image that's in front of you at any one time. So they have to work an awful lot harder to get those kind of callbacks and dialogues between moments. So if you are looking at storyboarding in your classroom, remembering that these images are not meant to be seen together is a really important way of understanding how they work. But there's certainly a lot of interplay in terms of breaking down what's the most important in our visual storytelling. And storyboarding is a great way to see the basics of both. Because it's where is your character? What way are they moving? What's important? What can be removed? So yeah, there's strong interplay. I think storyboarding is a lovely middle ground. It's worth mentioning that I am increasingly hearing writers and artists who adapt novels to graphic fiction as a halfway house to hopefully selling it on to be a film. I know some people who are purchasing rights to films, it's almost easier. You've already got a sense of how many sets, how many spaces. And then some have just been adapted to film because they were great books anyway. Persepolis, to me, is the standout example. And so the industry sees the connection as well very strongly. It's crazy. I never would have thought about that. They start to view it then as a bridge, nearly like a gateway to somewhere else. I was thinking of the two films, uh, Spirited Away or Moonrise Kingdom, and which one is more like a graphic novel or which one uses the elements of the language of a graphic novel. And I, I thought it was more uh, Moonrise Kingdom because each shot is like a, it's like a little panel and it tracks along. It's almost like going from one panel to the next panel to the next panel. And I just, particularly some kind of American graphic novel writers, and the, the kind of exaggerated, slightly exaggerated use of color and the exaggerated compositions just reminded me a little bit more of kind of the panel in, in graphic novels, more so than Spirited Away, which I thought was, it's, it's much more just a fluid animation. Just when I was watching it, it just occurred to me because I knew this question was there. I said, actually, you know what? This looks more graphic novel-like than... And it's worth bearing in mind what we think of a comic coming out of the Western tradition and what the animators and directors who work for Studio Ghibli's background in visual narrative is different as well, because there is very different grammar in manga than in American comics. Because I agree, I think Wes Anderson's film looks a lot more like what we think of when we think of a comic, but we also think of something very American when we think of a comic. And Muzaki and all the artists who work with him are coming from a very different visual tradition even in the way that time is treated in graphic fiction, which I think is something that really sets manga apart. And I think you can see that then in the animation. Echoing what Connor said, it's one of the things that strikes me about Moonrise Kingdom. And it's something you referred to a little bit earlier, Rosa, which was about how even though Spirited Away is a 
animation, it feels a lot more fluid, a lot more natural than this very deliberate, very uh, geometric, very stylized set that we have in or storytelling that we have in Moonrise Kingdom. I feel that I haven't taught it before, but I was thinking that it's one where you can really let students very deliberately see cinematography in a very deliberate way and how Wes Anderson has it so stylized and so set up and has the echoes of the different shapes and the colors that go throughout in a way that I suppose makes it very, as, as Connor said, very different panels and our eye is very much directed. He's very much directing our eye in a very deliberate way. Yeah, it's so distinctive, isn't it? Like yeah, Rosa yeah. earlier, and that it's curated. Your experience is curated by, by yeah. Anderson. Everything that's framed and um, or the binoculars, Susie and her binoculars, and they're her magic power. And she says in the film that she likes to look through them, even though even when she's close to something, she still likes to look through them because she can see it more more clearly. And it's just so deliberate for us. I just think it's a great film for teaching students about film. Have you alluded to this already, but can you talk about the use of colour? It's worth mentioning that when we look at colour in film or any kind of visual narrative, we do usually acknowledge that it is possible to use colour to do things like build symbolism and to build mood. It's always worth talking about it. It's not always like the end all answer. There is a lot of pink, actually in both films. It doesn't necessarily mean that the films are loving or girly or there is a huge amount of yellow in Moonrise Kingdom it doesn't necessarily mean that the mood is happy it's an awful lot more ambivalent than that I think they can be really useful conversations particularly for deconstructing a particular scene and I think it's useful for students to be aware that there are common connotations with colour but also just to be really open to the fact that we use colour in film in a that's part of a dialogue and it's not about what pink means in our culture in general it's about what conversation Pink is having in this particular scene in relation to all the other colours around it. There's a couple of scenes in Moonrise Kingdom where there's Susie and all the boys, or like a range of scouts, and they're all like yellow, greeny, very muted, very desaturated, and Susie's in this pink dress. And I don't think it's about the fact that she's a girl and the visual director thought, mm, girl, let me think, pink, that'd be brilliant and stuck it on her. I think there's much more you can do with it than that. But it does make her different. It does make her the new element in a scene that's very cohesive. The trees are kind of greeny brown, the boys are yellowy brown, everything's greeny brown and yellowy, and then there's Susie. And she's a completely different colour. So there's, I think, plenty of scenes in both these films where you can pull out individual things and say, this isn't just colour meaning something by itself, but this is the colour that relationship has to the rest of it that's telling us something about what the director wants us to think. The other one that struck me in the other film, in Spirited Away, but again, I thought the use of pink in Spirited Away is really interesting. And then obviously when Jihiro has her own clothes and is getting closer back to her own life, she goes green. And everything else is pink and all the other staff are pink, with the exception of Haku, who is very cool from the first time we see him in terms of colour. Um, so all the staff in the bathhouse are in very warm colours and the inside of the bathhouse is very rich. There's lots of reds. The higher up you go in that building, the more red there is, which could be danger or opulence, depending on which way you want to play that. And Haku is 
white and blue. He's different, he's apart, he's cool, he's elusive. He's also a river. And we don't know that until the final scenes, but it's been built into his character design from the very start. But that's noteworthy and that tells us something about him only in contrast to the other colours being used. And I think that's a much better way to look at that colour and read that colour than simply say, Aku has some like blue detailing on his shoulders and he's a little bit sad that he doesn't remember his name or know where his home is anymore. So the blue equals sadness. And especially if you're working with younger years, like your first years, they'll be really good at that. Let them go for that. Let them express that. But then try and draw them up a little bit more. Give, I think, colours that bit of independence because it's always about conversation. Colour in conversation. Very important. I'm learning. I'm listening and learning. <laughs> Rosa. Comment either there from Mary or Connor. Yeah, I'm going to reiterate what Rosa was saying. Uh, it, red doesn't mean whatever it is you said it meant. Green doesn't, it can. It doesn't straight away mean this thing. It often can refer back to other elements in the film or make connections, or it could be for rhythmic reasons. It could be, there are lots of different reasons. I also loved that scene with the boys and Susie. And it's like, again, Lorraine, we were talking about Peter Pan the other day. What was her name? Was it Mary reading the story to, to the kids, the Lost, the lost Boys? Yeah. Actually, like the mother. I, I love that. And I also, Haku and the Blue. It's fantastic. The colours are really interesting. And there's lots that you could say about them. But one thing that did strike me, especially about the Miyazaki one, was dark characters. So you have no face with his black gown. And then you have the stink spirit, who turns out not to be the stink spirit. And all in brown. In, sorry, no face is dark black. His name's wearing a black gown. Yeah. And stink spirit is brown. Yeah. And disgusting and both of those are revealed later on not to be what they appear like at all mm. and he's just playing with our expectations of the color that they arrive on scene in and then later on they reveal to be something else even those the messages that we're getting from those colors aren't actually the truth of them i love when rosa said about colors being in conversation how like that it's not this denotes or connotes x y or z that it's actually to look at, you know, the context and how are the colours in conversation. I love that idea. That really struck me from what was just said. Rosa, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and insights around the visual impact of film. I know that I find it really enriching, as I'm sure others will too. We will continue this conversation with Rosa in the next episode when we will focus on the use of light in film. We hope you enjoyed our chat as much as we did today. Thank you so much for listening. I'd like to thank my colleagues, Mary and Connor, for sharing their experiences of using film in the Junior Cycle English classroom. To find out more about our podcasts and other resources, or to get in contact with the JCT English team, please go to www.jct.ie forward slash English, or follow us on Twitter at JCT English. To hear more from Junior Cycle Talks, search for us on SoundCloud or anywhere that you listen to your podcasts.